It's time for the Super Bowl. Good morning. February 3rd, tomorrow, the 4th, we're going to have the Super Bowl. And for New York Giants fans and New Yorkers, uh, this is not going to be a fun Super Bowl because the two teams playing, um, the only way we'll be happy is if both teams lose. And since we know that's not going to be possible, here is a list of items to help get you through the Super Bowl. Number one, of course, is Kleenex. You know, that's just, that's just therapy. You know, just having the Kleenex makes you feel better. You know it's there. Number two, you want two dartboards. One with the face of Nick Foles and one with the face of Tom Brady. And then every time either team gets a touchdown, you can throw darts into the appropriate dartboard, hopefully getting a bullseye. Uh, the next item I would get is um, another TV, just so you could watch anything else. Probably Game of Thrones would work the best if you were going to, you know, put something on against the Super Bowl, especially this one. But, you know, even the Honeymooners could work. Um, and where am I? One, two, three, four. Okay. Fourth item that you should get is a bat. So the next morning on Monday, when you come across any gloating uh, Philadelphia Eagles fans or Patriots fans, you can use the bat appropriately. Um, number five is uh, another thing that you should be shopping for is a new offense. Help our offensive coordinator. Send him send him suggestions because he's got nothing. That's for the New York Giants. The guy's got nothing. Um and let's see, number six. Uh another great thing to do is go around to people who have flags out for the Patriots or the Eagles and then just take them and then burn them. That's a good idea. Um, I'm sorry if I'm promoting violence right now, but you know, I think that we need a day, a day to act out on this terrible, terrible situation that has been brought upon us. So that's my list. Um, you should add some stuff too. Just send it to me. Emory JP. Bye. Today's horoscopes by Linda C. Black Astrology. Saturday, February 3rd. Today's Aries horoscope. Collaborate with your partner today and tomorrow to resolve a structural problem. Postpone distractions. Listen, confess your worries, and make a plan together. Taurus. Abundant work and simultaneous distractions could feel stressful. Avoid gossip or rumors. Maintain healthy fitness and health practices. Movement clears your head. Gemini. A spontaneous move could work today, but probably not for love or money. Relax and discuss plans and options with family. Wait for better conditions. Cancer. Coordinate home renovations and authorize improvements. Research options 
research options to narrow your choices and find a solution that supports your family. Leo, continue to take the high road with communications. Study the situation over the next two days. Don't gamble or gossip. Focus on making your deadline. Virgo, it's easy to blow the budget. Waste not, want not. Keep long-term goals in mind. Look for fresh income sources. Talk about what you love. Libra. Be careful when practicing new skills. Old assumptions get challenged. Use common sense, especially with someone who thinks differently than you. Show leadership. Scorpio. Review and revise your plans for the future. Are you having enough fun? Consider what you love and strategize for more. Organize your projects. Sagittarius, you have more friends than you realized. Enjoy parties, gatherings, and events without overindulging. Romance could interfere with business. Keep it cool. Capricorn, avoid provoking authorities. Discuss career options with trusted advisors and loved ones before crafting your plan. Follow the trail where money and passion intersect. Aquarius. Research and investigative exploration can bear fruitful results with patience. Keep a respectful tone. Avoid risk or expense. Make your deadline to win. And finally, Pisces. Follow the rules closely, especially with financial transactions. Coordinate plans with your partner. Misunderstandings spark easily. Maintain patience and compassion. And those were your horoscopes for today, February 3rd, 2018. This day in rock, February 3rd, 1958. The Royal Teen's biggest hit, Short Shorts, enters the U.S. record charts on its way to number three. 1959. The day the music died when Buddy, Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper were all killed when their plane took off a little after 1 a.m. from Clear Lake, Iowa. A cold northeast wind gave way to a blinding snowstorm which drastically reduced visibility. Encased in a sea of snow with only white below, pilot Roger Peterson seemed to become disoriented and flew the plane into the ground. One wing hit the frozen earth and the small plane tumbled over and over, killing the three musicians and the plane's young pilot. 1962, Gene Chandler's Duke of Earl tops the Cashbox bestsellers chart for the first of a five-week stay. In 2002, the record was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and has also been selected by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. 1963, 30-year-old Johnny Thunder, whose real name was Gil Hamilton, enjoys his only Billboard Top 40 hit when his rendition of the children's nursery song Loop-de-Loop peaks at number 4. 1967, Joe Meek, a British pop and rock producer, kills his landlady before shooting himself in the head. He's remembered for the instrumental hit Telstar, which he wrote for the Tornadoes. 1968. The Beatles record Paul McCartney's Lady Madonna at Abbey Road Studios in just three takes. The Fats Domino-inspired tune will reach number one in the UK and number four in the US. Domino himself would release a cover version of the song that topped out at number 100 on the Billboard chart later in the year. The same year, an Oxford, Ohio group called the Lemon Pipers saw their only Billboard top 40 hit, Green Tambourine, 
reach number one. They would never repeat that success. 1969, the Beatles hired Alan Klein to be their new manager. John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr all agreed, but Paul McCartney would not sign the agreement because he thought Klein had a bad reputation. 1978, the TV movie Dead Man's Curve, which was based on the lives of Jan and Dean, airs on ABC. The film features cameo appearances by Dick Clark, Wolfman Jack, and the Beach Boys Mike Love and Bruce Johnston. Jan Barry himself and his parents appear in the audience at the end of the movie. That same year, Harry Chapin meets with U.S. President Jimmy Carter, and the pair announced the creation of the Presidential Commission on Domestic and International Hunger and Malnutrition. 1979, a sold-out commemorative concert at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, uh, for the 20th anniversary of the crash that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. Wolfman Jack hosted the show, which featured performances by Del Shannon, Jimmy Clinton, and the Drifters. Same year, British rock band The Babies break through the Billboard Top 40 with Every Time I Think of You. Just like their first chart entry, Isn't It Time? Song will peak at number 13. 1992, Michael Jackson holds a press conference in New York City to announce his upcoming world tour will be sponsored by Pepsi. And proceeds from the journey will go to his Heal the World Foundation dedicated to helping children. 2002, Paul McCartney and Barry Manilow sing at a pregame concert before Super Bowl 36 in New Orleans. U2 provided the halftime entertainment. 2003, legendary music producer Phil Spector was arrested for investigation of murder after police found a 40-year-old woman, Lana Clarkson, shot to death in a pool of blood at the marble entrance to Spectre's home. 2004, Gene Hughes, who sang lead vocal on the casinos Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye in 1967, died in Nashville at the age of 67. He'd been injured in a car crash, suffered several setbacks during his recovery. Same year, 58-year-old saxophonist Cornelius Bumpus, formerly of the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan, suffered a fatal heart attack while on a commercial flight from New York. 2007, Wayne Fontana of the Game of Love fame was arrested at his home in Glossop, Derbyshire, England and charged with arson with intent to endanger life. 2010, former teen star Leif Garrett, who was shot to fame at the age of 15 with his 1970 single, I Was Made for Dancing, was arrested at an L.A. train station on suspicion of possession of a controlled substance and the 48-year-old later pleaded no contest and entered a drug rehab program. In 2016, Maurice White, vocalist and co-founder of Earth, Wind, and Fire, died in his sleep at the age of 74. He helped the band play 16 songs on Billboard's Top 40 chart between 1974 and 1983. And this is your day in rock. On February 3rd, today's quote of the day is by Eleanor Roosevelt. Justice cannot be for one side alone, but must be for both. And that's your quote of the day. Today's poem, this page ripped out and rolled into a ball, Brendan Constantine. A rose by any other name could be Miguel or Tiffany, could be David or Vashti, Wana Aya, which means beautiful flower, but also verse and miracle, and a bird that flies away quickly. You see where this is going. That is, you could look at a rose and call it you see where this is going, or I knew this would happen, or even why wasn't I told? 
I'm told of a man who does portraits for money on the beach. He paints them with one arm, the other he left behind in a war, and so he tucks a rose into the cuff, always yellow, and people stare at it, pinned to his shoulder while he works, call the rose Panis, because I think that's his name, or call it a chair by the sea. Point from the window to the garden and say, Look, a bed of painter's hands. And this is a good place to remember the rose already has many names because language is old and can't agree with itself. In Albania, you say trendafil. In Somalia, you say kakai. In American poetry, it's the flower you must never name. And now you see where this is going. Out the window across water, to a rose-shaped island that can't exist, but you're counting on to be there, unmapped, unmentioned till now, the green place you imagine hiding when the world finds out you're not who you've said. From Dave Barry Hits Below the Beltway why do we have government? This is a hard question, and like so many hard questions, the best way to answer it is to consider ants. When you see an ant on your kitchen floor, it appears to be an insignificant insect, scurrying around randomly, so you stomp it into a little smear without a second thought. But if, instead of stomping on the ant, you were to get down on your hands and knees and follow it, something fascinating would happen. Your head would bonk into the wall because the ant has scurried into a hole. So I'll just tell you where the ant goes. It goes to a nest containing an ant colony that is every bit as complex and organized as human society. In fact, it is more organized because there are no teenagers. Yes, even ants, tiny creatures with a primitive brain no larger than that of a psychic hotline caller, have a government. The ant government operates on what political scientists call the smell system, whereby your role in society is based on what chemicals you secrete. At the top of the hierarchy is the queen, who is elected unanimously by the other ants after a very brief political campaign that consists of hatching. Hey, the other ants say, this smells like a queen. Most of the other ants smell like workers, so they spend their lives scurrying around looking for food and exchanging important chemical information with the other ants they bump into. I'm an ant. Hey, me too. Also, there are a few winged ants whose job it is to scare you by flying around your house pretending to be termites. Well, this is the only form of entertainment that ants have. Ants are not the only animals that have government. Similar organizational structures can be found throughout nature. Monkeys form troops. Birds form flocks. Fish form schools. Worms form bunches of worms. Intestinal parasites form law firms, etc. In other words, governments are natural. All animals form them, including humans. In a way, we are like the ants scurrying across our kitchen floor. We give our cheese it fragments, which is tax money, to the colony, which is government, and in return we enjoy the many benefits provided by the colony, like the Federal Avocado Safety Administration.
Of course, human beings are far more advanced than animals. We do not elect the President of the United States based on how he smells. As cerebral beings, we are much more interested in other qualities in our President, such as height. As a result, we here in the United States have developed a sophisticated, highly complex government structure involving three major branches. Among other animal species, only woodpeckers have more. In this book, we will be taking a detailed look at the modern United States government, where it came from, what it does, who works for it, what planet they originated on, etc. But to truly understand how our government works in 21st century America, we must travel millions of years back in time and examine early human governments. The first humans were short, hairy, tree-dwelling creatures that strongly resembled Danny DeVito. Like their close genetic cousins, the apes, the humans lived in trees and had developed opposable thumbs. What distinguished the humans was that after sitting around in their trees for a couple million years with pretty much nothing to do except scratch themselves, they had made the most important discovery in the history of the world, the discovery that would vault them past all other animals, how to make the OK sign. This discovery of the OK sign gave the humans a huge strategic advantage over the apes, who could only make a non-committal shrugging gesture. This meant that if a smart ape thought up a good idea, such as the wheel, the other apes, even if they were really impressed, could only shrug. And the smart ape would think, ah, the hell with it. The primitive humans, on the other hand, used their new OK sign to respond to pretty much anything anybody did. This encouraged progress. And so on the historic day when one of the humans was considering the idea of leaving his tree and roaming around on the ground, the other humans went, OK. Thus emboldened, the courageous explorer stepped down onto the ground. It was a momentous moment in human history comparable to when astronaut Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon, except that instead of saying, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, the courageous early explorer said, irk, because a passing mastodon had stomped him into a smear. The other humans, seeing this, made the okay sign to one another and remained in the trees where they decided that to protect themselves, they had better form a government. The system they came up with, humanity's first form of government, was the tribal system. The leader was chosen via the following process. One, the tribe would hold a council, called the sacred council, wherein all the adult males would sit in a circle, called the circle of deciding, and decide by consensus which one of them was the most wise, trustworthy, and brave. This member would be designated as the chosen one. Two, the chosen one would pick up a stout stick called the Staff of Authority and hold it aloft, asking the gods for guidance. And number three, while the chosen one was doing this, he would get his head bashed in by the great big rock of heaviness, which was wielded by the male with the biggest muscles, who would then be unanimously elected leader. These early humans needed a strong government leader because their lives were harsh. They were hunter-gatherers, which meant that 
the men would go out and hunt wild game, after which the women would gather up the men's remaining body parts, because the game back then was really wild. Even when the humans did manage to kill an animal, they had to eat it raw. This situation continued for several eons until one lucky day when a primitive human, we'll call him Oog, happened to be standing outside during a thunderstorm, holding a piece of mammoth meat and was struck by lightning. When the smoke cleared, the other humans tasted the now-cooked mammoth meat, and they discovered that it tasted much better. They also discovered that Oog was delicious. This discovery ushered in what archaeologists called the Age of Barbecue. When the tribe killed an animal, the tribal leader would designate the one unfortunate person as the meat holder. This person had to stand outside during thunderstorms, holding the meat in the air on a stick, while the other tribe members waited safely inside a cave until they heard the lightning strike, indicating that their food was done. This brutal system finally came to an end when the humans discovered that they could create their own fire whenever they wanted by simply rubbing sticks together. This enabled them to have light and heat inside the cave while they waited for lightning to strike the meat holder. The age of barbecue lasted for 1.2 million years, during which the human race gradually developed a powerful hankering for side dishes. This, in turn, led to the invention of agriculture. Early agriculture was very labor-intensive. Workers toiled endlessly at the back-breaking labor of clearing and tilling the fields by hand. Then they'd spend anxious months praying for rain, chasing off pests, staring at the field, and hoping that their crops would grow, only to be bitterly disappointed time and again. This went on for 285,000 years, at which point somebody came up with the idea of planting seeds in the field. This breakthrough brought both good news and bad news. The good news was the seeds worked. The bad news was these particular seeds were for zucchini. Within a matter of hours, huge, violent, prehistoric zucchini weighing up to 900 pounds per unit were erupting from the ground, forcing the primitive humans to flee to other continents, thus spreading the human race around the world. Eventually, humans learned to grow less hostile crops, such as corn, maize, and alfalfa. They also learned to make simple tools, such as the plow, the adze, and the level. Few tribes had begun to try to domesticate animals, Although the results were sometimes less than beneficial as evidenced by the badly gnawed skeletal remains of one tribe that apparently attempted to attach its plows to teams of squirrels. The first animals to be successfully domesticated were dogs, which were a big help because they would bark all night and fetch thrown sticks, thereby freeing humans from having to perform these tedious yet vital tasks. The next important technological development was the discovery of iron, which resulted in the Iron Age, followed about six months later by the Rust Age. This new metal technology led to the era of a lot of fight. As the more powerful tribes began to conquer other tribes and control larger areas of land, civilizations formed. The first big one was in Egypt, which grew into a large nation and then declined. The Egyptian form of government was headed by the pharaohs, who were worshipped as gods. They had absolute power and could do whatever they wanted. As you would imagine, they had an extensive intern program. When the pharaohs died, they turned into mummies, a constant threat because they'd creep around at night and scare the bejabbers out of people. To prevent this from happening, 
the Egyptians buried the mummies deep inside the pyramids, which were history's first public works projects. Today, when we look at these massive structures, we ask ourselves in wonderment, how the heck did the Egyptians do this? How could an ancient civilization, one that did not possess even rudimentary bulldozers, manage to pile these massive blocks of stone on top of one another? The answer is mathematics. The Egyptians, despite living thousands of years before the invention of the scholastic aptitude test, were excellent mathematicians who understood geometry, trigonometry, long division, the cosine, and tipping. They used this knowledge to harness the awesome power of leverage. When they needed to lift a massive stone block, they would calculate the various forces and angles, fashion tree trunks into stout poles, then use these to whack their slaves over the heads while shouting, pick up this block. As you can imagine, this type of mathematics required a large slave population. In fact, from that point on, most government systems relied heavily on slaves to get things done. This practice continued until the discovery of taxpayers. Anyway, after several centuries, the Egyptian civilization finally declined because sand had gotten into everything. The next great civilization to arise was ancient Greece, which came up with an exciting new governing concept called democracy. From the Greek word dem, meaning everybody gets to vote, and ocracy, meaning except, of course, women, slaves, and poor people. The ancient Greeks produced some great thinkers, including Socrates, Jimmy the Ancient Greek, and Plato, the brilliant teacher who founded the most influential school of the ancient world. Plato's top student was Aristotle, who invented logic, which meant that for the first time it was possible to prove things by means of a device called a syllogism, whereby you would make two statements and then draw a conclusion as in this example. 1. Some toads are poisonous. 2. Marlon Brando looks increasingly like a toad. 3. Therefore, you probably should not eat Marlon Brando. With this powerful new tool, the Greeks, led by their legendary military genius Alexander the Great Onassis, became a world power. They'd march into a foreign country and start arguments with foreigners who did not have the syllogism and thus were easily defeated. But fate turned against the Greeks in 432 BC when their rivals, the Spartans, invented sarcasm. This was a formidable counterweapon. The Greeks would make their statements and give their conclusion, and the Spartans would just go, yeah, right. Within hours, the Greek Empire collapsed, creating a void that was soon filled by what would ultimately become the greatest, most powerful, most feared, and most influential empire that the world had ever seen, the New York Yankees. Uh, no, sorry, we're getting ahead of ourselves. The next major empire was, of course, the Romans, who were headquartered in Rome, Italy. The Romans were an amazing people who had somehow learned to speak Latin and invented many important abbreviations, including etc., IBID, OK, and RSVP, that are still in use today. They also had a large, powerful, highly disciplined army that wore coordinated outfits, 
consisting consisting of sandals, skirts, and helmets with brushes on them. The Roman soldiers would march into foreign territory, and while the foreigners were rolling around on the ground, laughing and shouting sarcastic remarks such as, Oh, please don't hurt me, Mr. Brush Helmet Man, the Romans would stab them with spears. By this process, they were able to conquer most of Europe. This created a Pax Romana that lasted for several hundred years, during which the Romans, utilizing the innovative engineering technique of poking spears into slaves, built roads, aqueducts, shopping walls, etc. By this point, they were operating under a system of government known technically as the fat guys wearing bedsheet system. This was a quid pro quo type of arrangement under which the residents of the empire sent the vast majority of their wealth to Rome, where it was consumed by fat guys wearing bedsheets. In exchange, the residents of the empire got more fat guys wearing bedsheets. Ultimately, the Roman Empire was doomed to fall because for some insane reason it used Roman numerals and nobody could remember what L stood for. As a result, the Romans wasted many hours standing around arguing about how much everything cost. While they were thus preoccupied, barbarian tribes, including the Huns, the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and the Goth Darnets, swept down from the north in horde formation, and despite the brave defensive efforts of the Roman soldiers, caused the Roman Empire to collapse. With civilization destroyed, humanity sank into the Dark Ages. This was a bad time. Lasting about 1,000 years, during which hardly anybody read books, and there was widespread ignorance. It was a lot like now, only without TV. The system of government used during the Dark Ages was feudalism because it was based on feuding. The main feud was between the Christians and the Muslims over the Holy Land. From time to time, a group of Christians would organize a crusade and march all the way to the Middle East to reclaim the Holy Land, and they'd be gone for maybe five years, and when they'd finally come back, they'd be shouting, We got it! We got the Holy Land! And all the other Christians would gather around, and the crusaders would display a box of dirt. And the other Christians would say, That's it? And the crusaders would get all defensive and reply, Hey, you see how much holy land you can carry across a whole darn continent. So they'd put the holy land on display. In a couple of months, what with normal spillage and people taking souvenirs, it would be pretty much gone. And somebody would have to organize another crusade. As you can imagine, this required money, which was provided by a revenue-garnering system based on serfs who tilled the soil in exchange for not getting their limbs lopped off with swords. Administering this system was a hierarchy of officials headed by a king. The society was organized around units of land called fiefdoms. At the center of each fiefdom was a castle, which had a moat around it and a drawbridge that would be raised whenever a boat had to go through. Sometimes two fiefdoms would get into a feud, and soldiers from one of them would march over to the other one's castle and lay siege to it. They would use various techniques to try to make the castle occupants surrender, including 
shooting flaming arrows, singing a hundred bottles of beer on the wall all the way through, or knocking on the castle door and pretending to be delivering pizza. If these techniques didn't work, the besiegers would sometimes use catapults to bombard the castle with boulders, diseased cattle, or this weapon is often referred to as, by historians as the hydrogen bomb of the Dark Ages, giant prehistoric zucchini. So the Dark Ages were a brutal time indeed, but they finally ended in 1483 when the famous Italian person Leonardo da Vinci invented the Renaissance. This ushered in an era when humanity at last awakened from the long restless sleep of unenlightenment, brushed the slimy bad tasting film of ignorance from its teeth, excreted the waste products of intolerance from its bladder, and wiped the eye-boogers of anti-intellectualism from its eyes. Within hours, nation-states began to form, the main ones being England, France, Holland, Britain, Spain, the Dutch, Portugal, the Netherlands, the Ottoman Empire, and Maize. All of these nation-states wanted to engage in a trade so they could get spices, which were a very hot commodity back then, and are often referred to by historians as the Internet stocks of the 15th century. This resulted in the Age of Exploration, in which hardly mariners set out on tiny ships to discover the rest of the world. This took tremendous courage, because when we say tiny ships, we are not exaggerating. The hardy mariners would step onto these ships and instantly sink like hardy stones into the sea, where they would fall prey to sharks or giant seagoing zucchini. Eventually, the mariners figured out that they should make the ships bigger. They were then able to reach the Orient, where they would pick up a load of spices, then begin the arduous return journey. These perilous voyages sometimes took years, at the end of which the mariners would return triumphantly to their home port to be greeted at the dock by excited throngs of their countrymen shouting, You got nutmeg! The recipe says oregano, you morons! Nevertheless, the training nations grew in wealth. Your typical nation in those days had a monarchy system of government under which all the wealth, after expenses, were divided up equally and then turned over to the king. The king would use the wealth to provide his nation with the fundamental elements of a government, a palace, a summer palace, a winter palace, a guest palace, a hunting palace, a lot of palace furniture, many paintings of the king, and some mechanism for chopping off people's heads. Also, of course, each nation would have a big army. Because in those days, kings were always getting into huge, complicated, grudge-based wars with one another. A good example was the Hundred Years' War, in which England and France fought for over a century over the commercial rights to Flanders, only to discover, after most of their soldiers were dead, that neither side had a clue where or what Flanders was or were. You can imagine the hearty royal laugh they had over that boo-boo. As the trading nations of Western Europe gained in power, it began to occur to them that instead of trading with other continents, there would be real financial advantages involved in actually owning them. So they took possession of Africa, North America, and South America. It turned out that there were people already living on these continents, but they were primitive people who could not even speak English.
They were happy to give up their land, natural resources, and freedom in exchange for the benefits of civilization, such as not getting shot. At first, the Europeans were mainly interested in removing all the valuables from their new colonies, particularly gold and silver, which were highly prized in those days and are often referred to by historians as the Pokemon cards of the 15th and 16th centuries. But eventually Europeans began to create permanent settlements in the colonies. One such group was the Pilgrims, who were unpopular in England because of their belief in a stern, unbending god who wanted them to wear hats shaped like traffic cones. In 1620, the Pilgrims sailed from England to Massachusetts, and during that long, difficult, storm-tossed crossing, they wrote and signed the historic Mayflower Compact, which states, Boy, are we nauseous. The Mayflower, Mayflower Compact also set forth a new concept of government, which under the colonists, instead of ceding authority to some faraway king, would make their own decisions for themselves as free men, able to control their own destinies. Most of them were dead by spring. But the ones who survived were able, with the help of a friendly Native American named Squanto, to grow enough food to survive the next winter, and that fall they held the first Thanksgiving to watch football and celebrate the bountiful harvest. Yes, life was looking good for the pilgrims, but big changes were looming on the horizon, because these colonists had dared to squeeze the tube of independence, thus releasing the toothpaste of self-rule, and there was to be no putting it back. The stage was being set in this new world for a new kind of government, a courageous and noble experiment in human coexistence that would lead to the creation of the greatest power that the world has ever known, Microsoft. In the next chapter, we'll examine the origins of this great corporation as well as its host nation, the United States. It is a fascinating saga, and one that we hope to God is zucchini-free. And that, again was an excerpt from Dave Barry Hits Below the Beltway.